Well, welcome to City Life. What a what an announcement for the men's retreat. Little known fact, I was clean shaven before that announcement. All this beard just came out. Just, they started talking about all that, all that, all that manly stuff. That was, but yeah, that is it is an awesome experience uh, to go. There's a lot on the horizon at the church. There's the worship night next Friday night, which is always incredible and powerful. So make note of those announcements, especially those regional ones. There's a, a woman's breakfast coming up in the fall. Life groups are around the corner. All these different ways to get plugged in, get rooted, and and really dig into the family of faith that's here and in the region, both here in Newport News. So I'd encourage you in that. But uh, we are continuing in our series, Road Rules. And if you've got your Bible with you tonight, uh, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, you're here for the first time, or you, you don't even know how you got in here and you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles under your pew. No worries. Bibles under your pew. But 1 Kings chapter 19. And I'm not, I'm, I haven't forgotten about this, but I'm going to give it to the drummer, Alfred, who was like a relief pitcher in the bottom of the ninth today, uh, came through, did an incredible job. Uh, but yeah, our, our other drummer, late, couldn't do it, so I'm going to give it to Alfred. So sorry, not sorry. That's who it's going to. <laughs> but uh, we're in this series, Road Rules. We're giving away Wawa gift cards. We're talking about the road because we're, we're, we're in a season of traveling. So many families right now traveling here, there, everywhere on vacations or just visiting family, whether they're driving or they're flying or they're on a ship, whatever it may be. And we're in this series to talk about principles that we can take with us, things that we can remember and recall as we're on the road. Uh, Moses spoke to the Israelites in Deuteronomy, and he was like, look, remember these things as you're with your kids and, and you're eating or even while you're out on the road. So that's kind of the idea of these principles, uh, because we've looked at Isaiah chapter 48, verse 17. We've said it every week. It's, it's where it says, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you what is good for you and leads you along the paths you should follow. See, just as Jesus, some 2,000 or so years ago, invited his disciples to follow him, God has been issuing this invitation to humanity through history. Follow me. Here are the paths for you to follow where you can find life and life abundant. And, and thankfully, we have the Bible that, that lays out these paths and then gives us the principles to walk down those paths with. And those are the things that we've been calling road rules throughout this series. We talked about break the circuit. We're not called to just do laps over and over again, but we're called from a point-to-point -point race in this journey of maturity. Talked about don't neglect the middle of nowhere, that God can move here and now, no matter where you are. We've talked about thou shalt not road rage. That's pretty self-explanatory. That was last week. You can podcast it. But then we also talked a few weeks ago now about don't take Rainbow Road. The shout-out to Mario Kart, right, and an ode to guardrails <laughs> and the, the value of guardrails, talking about the, the, the commands that God gives us and the accountability we can put in place with them so that we, like David, can say, I run on the path of your commands. See, that's about the standards and accountability that keep us on track. But tonight I want to point and take a step further to the people who, who put us on track, help us stay on track, and they're with us for the journey. You know, before we had phones and maps apps that talk to us and tell us, you know, in, five, in two miles, take exit 53. There used to be people that held maps beside you and would say those things like, hey, you got to get in the right lane because you're taking the next exit. That, that, that's person riding shotgun, right, who's giving you directions, who's on the journey with you. Uh, in that sermon on guardrails, I mentioned the trip that, that some of the men of the church, I think it was six of us, took a year ago. 
to the upper gullies of West Virginia, and we did these class five rapids. And like I explained that week, people die going down these rapids. Uh, so our wives, as we were leaving, were like in, in, comparing insurance policies, like uh, just joking about it, but not joking. <laughs> but the thing that took this from a treacherous, stressful, uh, possibly deadly trip to something that we thoroughly enjoyed was actually pretty fun is we had a tour guide. We had somebody that went with us. I, I told you guys about him. His name was Zach. And that's what enabled us to go on this treacherous trip where that's, that's how people die. If you're like, how do I not die on a class five rapid? Just don't go down by yourself. Bring somebody with you who knows what they're doing, right? <laughs> so that's what happened. We didn't need a travel agent for the trip because what a travel agent would have told us is this is where you go. Here's a couple tips. Good luck, right? We didn't need a travel agent. We needed a tour guide. The difference between a travel agent and a tour guide is the tour guide, he goes with you or she goes with you. They don't just say, here's what to do. Good luck. They're with you for the journey. They're helping you through the way. And society, and even the church, has a whole lot of travel agents to tell you what to do, what not to do, where to go, but they just don't go with you. They'll give you all the advice and then say, good luck. It's easy to do. <laughs> and why do we do it? Because it's easy to give somebody some advice, tell them do this or don't do that, and then best of luck to you. But we, in life, we need more than that. We need people that go with us. We need mentors. We need tour guides. And when I use the word mentor tonight, I'm just speaking to one who enables us to finish the race well. A mentor is somebody who helps us run and finish the race well, the journey that God's called us to. So role rule number five, if you're taking notes, is get a tour guide not a travel agent. Get a tour guide, not a travel agent. If you, if you want to take even more notes, you can put a little subheader, like, you know, covers of books. Everybody needs a Gandalf. But let's, instead of going to Lord of the Rings, let's go to the Bible. Uh, <laughs> got an amen from the front row on that. We're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 19. I want to start in verses 3 through 4. Verse 3 says, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. So what had just happened, he had just had this showdown with the prophets of, of Baal, Kind of showed them all up. A lot of them died. The, the, the queen at the time wasn't very pleased by this, so essentially she puts a hit out on Elijah, and he's running. And that's why he's scared. It says, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Again, after this stunning, miraculous showdown with these prophets of Baal, it's like anxiety and depression hits Elijah like a, a road wave. Like out of nowhere, he's, he's hit by anxiety. He's hit by depression. Not just fear for his life, but he's like, God, you can take my life. I'm done. I'm done. And you know, the church has so often been maybe not silent, but guarded when it comes to issues with depression and anxiety. And I'm just glad that God doesn't dodge the issue. God's word tackles it again and again. And, and I, as I'm in this chapter, I didn't want to just walk past it, right? Because so many of us struggle with anxiety or depression. Maybe not clinical, because there is clinical depression. It's an important distinction to make. There's also circumstantial anxiety and depression that we walk through in life. And I just believe God wanted to let this text speak tonight before we jump to the fifth row rule. Because sometimes we're not good with dealing with tension. Tension like the fact that joy, peace, 
These are supposed to be fruits of the Spirit, right? So, so how can somebody with that fruit also struggle with depression and anxiety? And we sometimes don't grapple with that tension well, well to where some people subscribe to this idea that Christians should be immune to depression and anxiety. And the solution becomes, well, pray harder and have more faith. And when that doesn't work, it just adds isolation and shame to the isolation and shame that was already there. Down this slippery slope is this lie that depression and anxiety have to do with sin. It's kind of like Job's friends that just show up and they're like, well, you must have sin in your life if you're dealing with this. And then you keep going down that slippery slope and you get the hurtful conclusion that somebody that commits suicide due to depression, like that's the unforgivable sin. We know where they went, right? Come on, these conversations, I mean, they could take us all the way to the end of the night tonight. And it may seem like a rabbit trail, but God wants to speak. And I I didn't want to jump over it. And I just want to end this passage, right here in this passage in 1 Kings 19, there's three steps that Elijah takes. And again, if you've got clinical anxiety and depression, right, there's big steps you can take to get help because it's physical as well as spiritual and, and all of that. But we all walk through seasons of anxiety. Walk through seasons where, like Elijah, depression just hits us like a wave, and there's practical advice that we see in Scripture. And I love that you see things in Scripture, and then the longer we're around, the more science there is, the more research there is, it just kind of lines up with what we see. And it it happens right here in 1 Kings 19. So I want to read first, again, verses 5 through 6, just continuing on. It says, then Elijah, Elijah, it's going to be a tricky night because I got Elijah and Elisha, so I better pronounce each of them right. So as he laid down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread and baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So first, we see that Elijah just passes out from exhaustion, anxiety, and it's while he's passed out, that God sends an angel to prepare him for this 40-day journey. So the first step we see if, if we're wrestling with anxiety or stress or depression or the many different angles of this feeling is quite simply take a nap, eat a snack. I mean, I can feel for Elijah. Elijah had been faithful in ministry, no doubt hungry to see revival. And again and again, there was just an utter lack of results. So he no doubt felt anxiety due to this weight that he had placed on himself that I'm going to work for God and we're going to see revival. But he wasn't seeing the results. That can spark anxiety. That can spark discouragement. That can make its way to depression. But I love it. It's when he was passed out, unconscious, doing nothing, that God was working. And God was working on his behalf. You know, I think sometimes God made us created us so that we have to sleep for basically a third of each day so that we'd be reminded that, hey, the world will go on without you, right? You don't have to carry the weight of the world. God is still going to be able to take care of things. There's a calming peace in that. When you feel like you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders just to say, you know what, even when I sleep, like the parable of the farmer in Mark, those seeds that I planted, they're going to take root even while I'm sleeping, even while I have to step away because God can do what I can't. You know, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America encourages those suffering from depression, both circumstantial and clinical, to get additional sleep and to eat well-balanced meals, both of which enable the body to persist through the taxing symptoms. God knew what he was doing when he offered Elijah a chance to rest and be nourished before he had him go forward. But then we see a second step in this journey to Mount Sinai, which just 
Carved out quiet time. Verses seven through nine. Again, the angel of the Lord came and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And there he came to a cave where he spent the night. Again, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, this journey to Sinai, 40 days, 40 nights. He didn't have his, his iPod. He didn't have his iPhone with music playing. He wasn't podcasting, listening to the latest album of his favorite artist. Most likely he was walking in silence. Maybe the sound of nature, the sound of the, the rain, his feet underneath him, but mostly silence for 40 days and 40 nights. And then it's when he gets to this mountain where we get this famous account where there, there's, a, there's an earthquake there's fire. God isn't in any of that, but God's in the silence. This ties deeply again to road rule number three. Don't neglect the middle of nowhere because sometimes it's just what the doctor ordered. I said in that sermon that one of the weapons of the enemy is not a full frontal attack. It's just death by distraction. And, and it's not far from reality as research has shown that depression in adults is linked strongly to social media. There's value in unplugging for a season, both figuratively and literally. And this is where we arrive in 1 Kings 19, 14, where we find the third step and step into the fifth row rule. And again, it's immediately after this passage where God doesn't show up in the earthquake. God doesn't show up in the fire. He shows up in the sheer silence. And basically, he asks Elijah, what's up? And then we get to verse 14. It says, Elijah replied again, says, I have jealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Then the Lord said to him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram, then anoint Jehu son of Nimshi to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Maholah, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. So last week, actually it was the week before last, a wave conference was hosted down at Virginia Beach. Tuesday night they had a uh, kind of like a pastor's summit is what they call it. And so I wanted to go, but Steph and I have a, a three-year-old now, so I don't just up and leave. She had appointments in Richmond. So because of traffic, literally we about high-fived in the driveway, and then I was off to Virginia Beach. And I flew down there, and I got to, to the event, and there weren't many cars in the parking lot. And I was like, huh, this must be a pretty intimate, like, pastor's summit. It must be, like, pretty uh, exclusive list. I'm thinking, all right, I've made it, right? And then I walk inside, I'm at the wrong campus. They have two campuses down there. It was at the one about 20 minutes down the road. Story gets better. I walk out to my car, and I'm like, ah, right, no big deal. No big deal. I'll just drive over 20 minutes, get there. Click, click. Just battery out of nowhere died, right? Just out of nowhere. But I'm a responsible adult. Had cables in my trunk. So I'm set, right? Only one issue, right? When your battery's dead, you don't just need the cables. You need somebody else with another vehicle. So I went inside and, and I went and grabbed somebody and they were able to jump my car and I was able to get there before Erwin McManus spoke. It was amazing. Uh, it was probably just the enemy trying to stop me from getting there, right? But uh, so often in life, this happens. Where we're on our journey and then we get to a season where life gets rough. We lose juice. We kind of drift and we're dry. 
And it's not enough to just have the cables. We need somebody to come alongside of us. In the same way you hook up one battery to another and that battery sends the juice over, we need to connect and they can pour from their heart and pour into our hearts. So often in those seasons, God wants to reconnect us to the people he's placed around us, and that's where we find life. You know, the author of Hebrews is writing, and he's, he's trucking through Hebrews. Hebrews is an amazing book in the New Testament. And he gets to this part, or he or she, we don't know. Many people actually think, uh, can't think of who it is. Dean, you probably know. But one of uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they think it was her. We don't know. So let me say he or she. Total rabbit trail. Get to chapter 10. That person gets to a section that is uh, all about perseverance, to persevere in the faith. Don't let go of your faith. Don't give up. And, and that's where we get the very famous verse where it says, don't forsake coming together one with another. Talks about provoking. And another translation talks about stimulating one another to good works. That, that you can connect with people, and that's what provokes us and stimulates us to keep going when we're in a season where it's just not good. We're dry. We've drifted. We've, we feel like we've lost juice. As you know, again, the Mental Health Foundation confirms what God calls us to, connection with people and its benefits. People with stronger connections to their families and communities, including communities of faith, are less vulnerable to mental health problems like depression and anxiety. Look, isolation is insidious, and the enemy knows this. Verse 3, before Elijah, we see Elijah hit rock bottom. Where we started tonight, it says in verse 3, it says, Elijah left his servant behind. He'd stepped into just all alone isolation, and, and, and God was saying, look, it's time to reconnect in a meaningful way, and God points Elijah back towards people. And he encourages him in the fact that he's not alone. You're not alone. You're just isolated, right? Elijah says in this passage, I'm the last one, right? I'm all alone. What's God's response? Actually, there's 7,000. <laughs> there's 7,000 just like you. Maybe not prophets, but people that have stayed faithful. Elijah, he was, he was in touch with his feelings, right? He felt alone, but he was out of touch with reality. There were 7,000 others that had remained faithful. He was in touch with his feelings. He felt isolated, but he was out of touch with community. There were 7,000 others. You know, as we, we've talked about in this very series, there's value in solitude. There's value in escaping from the noise and unplugging like we just talked about. There's value in rest, but isolation can be harmful. Wendell Berry, in his book, The Art of Commonplace, he says, healing is impossible in loneliness. It's the opposite of loneliness. He says conviviality, a fancy word for hospitality, is healing. You know, solitude is good, again, in doses. But isolation, stripping ourselves from community altogether, it's a bad state to settle into. We find out real quick what God knew with the first man, that it's not good for us to be alone and go at it alone. You know, one of God's prescribed solutions for Elijah, when he's all burnt out and alone, is, is get a new focus. Elijah, in this passage, he's saying, look, I'm no better than my father's, right? He's swimming in self-pity. And God says, your focus is broken. Let's go, uh, let's go appoint a couple kings. <laughs> let's go pour into others. Let's go get you an Elisha. You know, Elisha is a pretty big deal. Again, Elijah and Elisha. It's tricky. It's like, God, why, why did it work out like this? Why, why do we need these guys back-to-back -back pouring into one another? Elijah pours into Elisha. And as big a deal as Elijah is, right, Elisha performed so many miracles and lived this life that parallels Jesus in a lot of ways in the Old Testament. He was an Old Testament hero. 
Right? And as the common saying goes, heroes are made, not born. Forget who said it first. It's been quoted a million times. And for every hero, there's almost always a hero maker. You just even think about pop culture, right? There's Frodo and Gandalf. There's Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan. What else? We got Rocky and Mickey, Katniss and Haymitch, Daredevil and Stick. Before I, before I go too into obscure references, uh, let me get out of my low-grade comic nerd. We can be high-browed English major. This is what is called the, the, the hero's journey. Joseph Campbell, in his famous work, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, he breaks down the, tip, the typical hero's journey we see in literature, in movies, in pop culture. There's 12 stages in this hero's journey. And you see very early on in the fourth stage in this cycle that we see again and again in, in our culture, in literature, and in these stories, it's the fourth stage where the hero meets a mentor. The hero realizes he's ill-equipped for all that lies ahead, but meets somebody who offers wisdom, tools, and the courage needed for the journey. Again, it's one who enables them to run and finish their race well. And it speaks to this reality that individuals who accomplish great things, they rarely do it all on their own and alone. You know, one of the things that we buy into in our culture is, is that if there's truly greatness within us, we don't need those around us because the greatness is within us. And so our sense of greatness can actually lead us to diminish the value of other people. And whether you see the race you're on as a marathon or a sprint, the only runner that really truly matters is you and tapping into the greatness that's within you. But you know, a common cause of living beneath our capacity is choosing to run the race alone rather than linking arms with those that God has placed around us. Because as we talked about in this series, we need people around us to support, to correct, to encourage, to mentor, to be that tour guide as we go down those rapids who can coach us through it. You know, sometimes the greatest gift in these stories of the mentor to the emerging hero is introducing them to a bigger dream, a greater cause, something that's bigger than just them. Again, to dive back into those references, Obi-Wan didn't just train Luke in the Force, he prepared him to topple the Empire. Dumbledore didn't just teach Harry Potter magic, he taught him how to confront Voldemort, right? Haymitch didn't just train Katniss how to survive the Hunger Games, he taught her how to lead a revolution against the Capitol. And maybe you're like, bro, you're a little heavy on the pop culture references tonight. It's in scripture, right? Moses trained Joshua, Naomi raised Ruth, Mordecai mentored Esther, Jesus poured into his disciples. These were mentors, these were people that poured out into others and really essentially were hero makers. Again, the church has... A lot of travel guides, they'll tell you what to do and where to go, but they don't go with you. Because, again, it's easy to give people advice and they say, hey, good luck with that. But we need more than that. We need people that will go with us. We need mentors, uh, one who equips us to finish our race well. You know, the Harvard Business Review interviewed hundreds of successful CEOs. They were trying to find, like, what's the common theme between all of these successful CEOs? Hundreds of them. The one common theme they found between all of them. Every single one of these CEOs is the title of the article. Everyone who makes it has a mentor. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's CEOs, right? How many of those we got in this room? But they did another study of students. And they found that a student with a mentor relationship did better in class, finished more assigned work, improved in academics, and upon graduation typically earned more as employees than those that didn't have a mentor or somebody to pour into their life. You know, business leaders have executive coaches, athletes have physical trainers. Why do we so often try to run the race alone? Again, this idea of a mentor, somebody who will say, look, 
you can finish this race. And equips us and enables us to do just that. And I want to show a video that kind of hits on this example. So that runner's name is uh, Derek Redman, and I think more people know who he is these days than whoever won gold in that race because of that story and that video. And he was favored to medal. He had just overcome like an Achilles injury. People were saying it was a miracle that he was even running. And, there, and he was favored to win silver, possibly better. You know, maybe he wouldn't, but at least he was going to run this race, and it was a miracle that he was there. And as you saw in the video, about 150 meters into this 400-meter race, he felt a searing pain, and that was his hamstring tearing. Luckily, I can't. Uh, describe what that feels like because it's never happened to me, right? But years of training, overcoming previous injuries, all of it out the window. But he didn't want this race or his career to, to finish on the ground, so he got up and he started hopping. And who knows if he would have made it all the way to the finish line hopping on one leg like that with a torn hamstring. But luckily, we didn't have to figure out because his father, as we saw, right, the good father, the reckless father with his reckless love kind of pushed through security, got out onto the track. And uh, that wasn't just his father. That was his trainer. And so he pulls up, and, and I'm like, what did he whisper in his ear? So I did some research, and uh, what he said to his son was, we started this thing together, now we're going to finish this thing together. You know, we all need people in our life who will say this to us, because the faith walk is not for the faint-hearted, and it's a long haul, and we need fathers, and, and, and not just biological fathers, but people that love us like fathers, who will say, look, we, we started this race together. We're going to finish this race together. We're going to finish this thing together. And, th and they, they equip us to do it, and they come alongside us when we need somebody to come alongside us. In 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 16, uh, Paul talks about the need for spiritual fathers. And this is in the message version, but he says there are, oh, excuse me, let me read the whole, the whole bit. That's a small portion. He says, I'm not writing all of this as a neighborhood scold <laughs> just to make you feel rotten. I'm writing as a father to you, my children. I love you, and I want you to grow up well, not spoiled. He says, there are a lot of people around who can't wait to tell you what you've done wrong, but there aren't many fathers willing to take the time and effort to help you grow up. 
It was as Jesus helped me proclaim God's message to you that I became your father. I'm not, you know, asking you to do anything that I'm not already doing myself. You know, like we talked about last week and that, that sermon just on, on the outrage addiction in our culture. There are a lot of quote-unquote neighborhood scolds, people who are, are willing to call people out uh, for their sins, but not many that are willing to join Jesus in the work of calling people out from their sin. And we have plenty that will pass on information, but not enough fathers, as Paul is saying, who will pour out their lives. People who will come alongside us and say, hey, we're, we're going to finish this thing together, right? This work that God started in you. But to stop there would be to miss the point. Because I think what's powerful in the story of Elijah is that his joy is restored. He's delivered from this anxiety and depression, not by being given a mentor or somebody to pour into him, but by sowing into others, anointing two other kings, coming alongside Elijah and anointing him to be a prophet. You know, I, I, I say everybody needs a mentor tonight. And you might think, yeah, I know I, I for sure could use somebody to help me through this situation or to get me to the finish line. But no, everyone needs a mentor. Everyone needs somebody to come alongside them. And, and, and so often we're content to live our faith out, but God calls us to pass it on, right? To see past ourselves. Again, let's rewind. Elijah's like, I'm no better than my father. He's in self pity, but God's prescription, he says, Look, your focus is broken. Let's take it from your navel gazing and back out towards other again. And let's let this revive you. You know, there's just this reality that one of the greatest sources of life for ourselves is being a source of life for others. There's life that's found in, in, in letting God use us for others. And one of my favorite examples of this is right in this passage, and it's the Sea of Galilee. And maybe you're looking at the passage like, I don't see the Sea of Galilee here in my text. But uh, to get to Elisha, it says he had to go through the wilderness of Damascus, which is right east of the Sea of Galilee. By some accounts, he could see the Sea of Galilee as he was walking to get where he was going. And again, this is one of my favorite analogies because the Sea of Galilee is connected to the Jordan River. Also connected to the Jordan River is the Dead Sea, not far from the Sea of Galilee. The Dead Sea is 10 times saltier than the ocean, right? Maybe you're one of those people that can't figure out how to float on water. Everybody floats on water there because it's so salty and so dense. Everybody just floats on the top, but all that saltiness and the there's no marine life that can live in it, hence the title, the Dead Sea, right? Well, see, the Sea of Galilee is just north of the Dead Sea. And like the Dead Sea, it receives water from the Jordan River. But unlike the Dead Sea, there's so much marine life and plant life in it. That's where we see this whole fishing culture in Jesus's or in the Gospels. That was here at the Sea of Galilee. There's like 12 different varieties of fish, enough to support an entire trade of fishing. And thinking, how, why the difference? It's the same region. Same climate, same Jordan River feeding these two bodies of water. The difference is the Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee, and then it flows out of it. It keeps the Sea of Galilee healthy and vibrant. But the Jordan River flows south of the Sea of Galilee, and then it finally meets the Dead Sea. And the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea, but there's no outlet. It's so far beneath sea level that nothing flows out. And so it's become so full of these minerals that it becomes unfit for life. And this is such an analogy for, for our spiritual walk because the Dead Sea just takes in, takes in, and takes in. And we can become so obese spiritually that we never do anything with it that we're of no use. But the Sea of Galilee, it inhales 
and it exhales. One of the greatest sources of life that we will find as we follow Christ is being a source of life for others. Right? Truly, Jesus is the source of life, but we get to be vessels, and there's so much life that's found in that. See, we see, again, Elijah's joy is restored not by receiving somebody to pour into him, but by beginning to pour into Elisha, who he would pour himself into. It says in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 38, this is Jesus speaking. He says, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. You know, if we truly come to Christ and he truly impacts us, there should be an overflow of, of, of living water in us that we can't hold in and we can't contain. Curry Blake, he's an author, he, he, says, he puts it point blank, period. If your gospel isn't touching others, then it hasn't touched you. If the gospel that we've received isn't something that's overflowing and touching others, then it hasn't touched you. You know, God doesn't want us, again, to just survive and grow. He wants us to do that, but he doesn't just want us to survive and grow. He wants us to multiply. He wants us to not just be the hero in the story. He wants us to be hero makers, to, to, to help others along in their story. And maybe you're thinking, uh, that's great, but how? Like, I'm no sage. <laughs> I'm no uh, person that uh, has it all figured out. Like, I'm barely making it myself. But the questions become, who are you flowing into? Right, who are you touching? Who are you serving? Who's, who's the one that's waiting on you? And, it, and we see the call of Elisha. That's the heading in, in my text. And uh, it's what we're going to look at a little bit next week for the next road rule. But we see the call of Elisha. And it kind of ties into uh, last week's road rule. Thou shalt not row rage, right? We talked about the, this, this hamster wheel of, of outrage that our culture is on and, and offense. And in a culture of outrage, we're called to step off of that and be a people of outreach. Because we, we truly do live in, in a call-out culture. In a recent article looking at this idea of a call-out culture, um, one student lamented the fact that she had held back on many things that she normally would say or do because of fear of being called out. And she actually said uh, to this interviewer that people won't call you out because your opinion is, is wrong. People will call you out for literally anything. She said, on Twitter today, I came across someone making fun of a girl who made a video talking about how much she loved God and how she was praying for everyone. There were hundreds of comments, rude comments below the video. It was to the point they weren't even making fun of what she was standing for. They were picking apart everything. Her eyebrows, the way her mouth moves, her voice, the way her hair was parted. Ridiculous. I'm not the kind of person to be able to brush off insults like that. Hence why I avoid any situation that would put me in that position. And that's sad. You know, we, in a lot of ways, we do live in a culture of just calling people out. And the result, as we see here, can be to stay timid. Walk on eggshells. Don't shine too bright. But again, we see in Hebrews 10, we as a church are called to provoke others to do the complete opposite. Shine all the brighter, right? Point the finger to God all the more. And that takes a culture of not calling out, but calling forth. In Romans chapter 4, verse 17, it speaks of a God. It speaks of God as one who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And that word that's translated in the King James as calleth, it has two meanings. One is to bid to come forth. This is what we see Jesus do with, with Lazarus when Lazarus was dead, seemed dead to everybody else, but Jesus said, hey, I'm calling you forth and brings life to Lazarus. The second meaning is to call like when the messenger of God in Judges 6, 12 spoke to a fearful, cowering Gideon, threshing his wheat in a wine press to hide, and he called him a mighty man of valor. 
right? The church needs to be a place of calling forth that can see a valley of dry bones like Ezekiel and speak to it and call forth life out of it. That can see dry, dead bones in somebody's life and you'll just point at it and point it out, but you can actually speak life to it and call life out of it, right? That can see things that seem dead and speak life to it. That can see People that seem like cowards, seem like jokes, like Gideon, and say, no, you're a, you're a mighty warrior. You're a son. You're a daughter of God. You're a daughter or son of the king, right, to be able to call forth those things. I was in youth ministry for years. The culture of high schools and middle schools is not one of calling forth. It's one of calling out, cutting up, and sometimes it's in, you know, all love, but sarcasm. It was me through high school and college. I didn't start following Christ till later on, so don't judge me. But that, that was the, I realized, like, this is the culture that these students are walking in daily. Some of them are going home to parents who, who cut up on them and are, are dissing them. And I'm like, look, to all our leaders, like, our, our youth ministry should be a place where it's totally different than that. Like, where they can escape that. Where this can be a place where, like, we can call forth the things that God wants to call forth in them rather than the culture that they're a part of. Again, in this culture of calling out, the church needs to be a people that, that calls forth, that speaks life. And really, it boils down to God, help me to see people like you see them, right? Help me to see the things that aren't yet awakened in their life, that maybe seem dead, maybe seem dry, but just need your spirit, need your grace, need your mercy, and need your love. And how can I be a part of bringing that to life and calling it forth? But if I could have the worship team come up, this call to call forth, it's a call to connect. It's a call to invest. And sometimes this call to community is scary because if we're honest and if the church is honest, opening yourself up means you can be hurt, right? And opening yourself up to a church community means you can be hurt. And some people have been hurt by the church. And if we just got to be honest about it, but we also have to be honest about the solution. You know, there was a, a, a hashtag on Twitter for weeks there called church hurt. And people were just explaining how church had hurt them. Religion had hurt them. Pastors had hurt them. There's an author and poet and artist, Jackie Hill Perry, and, and she said, you know what God used to heal me of my church hurt? Because her story is that, of being hurt by the church. She said, you know what God used to heal me of my church hurt? The church. <laughs> Again, like we spoke to earlier, healing is impossible in loneliness. Right? We need God and we need God's people. And he calls us to specific churches, but... If you're leading, living isolated, the call tonight is, is a call to community. You know, gathering is a pathway we preach here, and pathway is just a word for the spiritual disciplines and these paths that God has laid out for us. And it seems so simple, but it's key, right? Like, I just tell people when they're, they talk to me about it, it's like just, there's always going to be a week in the month where you can't be there. You're sick, you're on vacation, especially in the summer. Just make it your goal to be to church three times a month. Just be consistent in gathering because being in that atmosphere where people are calling out to Jesus, calling forth things in each other, that awakens something in you that you can't have outside of it. <laughs> I can remember, uh, it was years ago, somebody was like, I, I keep coming to the church. People keep asking me if it's my first time. And we're known as a welcoming church. And I was like, in the most lovingly way possible. I was like, it's because you come like every six weeks. Like just come be a part of the family. Come be a part of the, the, the gathering together and, and get rooted with people. Get to know people. There's so many opportunities for us. Not just I'm not just talking weekly gatherings, but that worship night next Friday, the men's retreat that's coming up, the women's breakfast that's coming up, all the life groups, that huge wave of life groups that's going to hit. These are opportunities to gather, get to know people. You know, as men, 
really everybody, but I know as men, it's so easy to have like activity friends. Like we golf together, we smoke cigars together, we do this together, because you have common interests. There's some intentionality when it comes to actually being transparent, right? Actually seeking out an Elijah for your Elisha, seeking out an Elisha for your Elijah, somebody that you're pouring into, somebody that's pouring into you these opportunities to grow. But just two questions to apply this tonight. The first is, what's your greatest need right now? As you look at your life, you're like, man, I need to grow in this area. My marriage is a mess. I need help with my marriage. My finances are a mess. I need help with my finances. My, my, my walk with Christ is, is dry, distant, derailed. I need help there. You look around your life, whether it's this room or the people God has placed in your life, there's no doubt people that you can reach out to and say, hey, I need help in this area. I think sometimes because we're a Siri generation, we think it's going to be one person. But for five problems, it might be five different people. But that's why the, the body of Christ is so beautiful. Because there's such a wealth of wisdom in here. There's such a wealth of experience in here. But the body of Christ is one of the ways that we walk in the life and life abundant that Jesus promises. It's how we run the race. It's how we persevere, as we see in Hebrews 10. It's one of the ways that we finish well. But then the second question tonight is, who are you pouring into? And who's pouring into you? Who are you pouring into? And who's pouring into you? And sometimes that might take some serious reflection. Because again, the goal isn't just for us to survive and to grow ourselves, but it's to pour into others. Is your spirit like the Dead Sea? Or is it like the Sea of Galilee? Again, one of the greatest sources of life for ourselves is pouring life into others. Speaking truth into others and calling forth just to close with this, again, in John 7, verses 37 through 38, Jesus says, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Dear Jesus, I pray that, God, tonight we would encounter you in this way, that we would leave filled and not empty. We would leave uh, <laughs> filled and not dry. Lord God, that being in this atmosphere tonight, worshiping you, coming to you in your word, we simply ask that your Holy Spirit we just rest in this place, but it would fill us. Because, God, the calling you've given us is always bigger than we think it is. The purpose for us is always bigger than we think it is. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would awaken us to the callings and purposes you have for us, right where you've placed us, Lord God. But, Jesus, we step into your presence tonight. Man, if any of those questions just awakened needs for prayer, the leads are in the back. I'll be up here. But Jesus, I pray that as we worship, you would draw all of us unto you. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. Man, if you need to pray for that, you've never prayed that prayer, I would love to pray for you. The Lees would love to pray for you. But let's step into a moment of worship. Let's stand and worship as we close. beside you 
Show me who you are and fit. 